Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, hear the word of the Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And you just need to know something about me. I love running, okay? I love the adrenaline rush that comes in running. I love uh, the sense of accomplishment when you're done with a run. I love being right on the brink of death and then taking two more steps. Uh, it's weird, I know, but I love it. And there's one distance that tempts every runner at some point in their life. If you love to run, you ponder running 26.2 miles, okay? Maybe some of you are like, no, you don't. Um, and actually, there are a lot of reasons not to run a marathon. Huffington Post put out an article that gives you 26, one for each grueling mile of the marathon. One of those is chafing, awful, awful chafing, okay? So I get it. I know, I know. I get it, I get it, right? But there's something that's even more interesting to me is that a distance that used to be considered absurd, some of you may still consider it absurd, that is kind of used to be reserved for just an elite few group of runners has now become a national craze. And it's all over the United States, and it's not just within the United States, it's exploding all over the world. Did you know that marathon participants in China have skyrocketed over the past few years. Look at that curve. Hmm? Now, NPR was reporting on a story uh, this last week kind of describing this phenomenon. And they came up to this one guy, Chu, who's standing right there at the start line of his first marathon. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I've been training a long time for this. All my muscles are relaxed and ready. And then he said this, I haven't even smoked a single cigarette in five days. <laughs> Wait, what? Like apparently, you know, Chu, last year when he ran his first half marathon, he had a hard time breathing because, get this, he had been smoking all the way up to the morning of the half marathon. And now he decided that maybe taking a five-day break from his two-pack-a-day habit was going to help a little bit. Good thinking. Now, then I'll never forget what Chu said next in this interview. He says, I think I'll run much faster now, mm -hmm. but definitely I'll need a cigarette after the race. 
just like running, smoking has benefits too. <laughs> listen, okay, that'll kill you, okay? And listen, I love this guy. I'm not trying to poke fun at him, bless his heart and all that stuff, right? And I was laughing my face off driving in my car. But after I stopped laughing and after I felt first then remorseful for this guy, like he's going to kill himself doing this, then I had a moment of kind of introspection where I really started pondering, where is my life inconsistent? Because the reality is, is we've all kind of got these absurd inconsistencies in our life, don't we? You know, you say you're going to get better at fill in the blank, and then you hold on to these things that kill you, that, that kill relationships, that kill community. And I think these inconsistencies, they point to something much deeper, a much deeper problem. And here's, I think, at the heart of much of our wrestling and much of this inconsistency is that we work really hard and we strive really hard to feel better about ourselves without actually seeking to understand how we become better in ourselves. That's a clear distinction, to feel better about ourselves rather than seeking to understand what it means to become better in ourselves. And so we downplay our vices, and most of us can't even define what virtue means anymore today. And I think it's had ripple effects across our country here in the United States. You know, you could look at the incarceration rate in the United States. Did you know that we have less than 5% of the world's population in the United States China apparently has a billion more people. That was just blew my mind thinking of this marathon. Billion more people. I digress. We have less than 5% of the world's population, and yet we have somewhere around 25% of the world's known prisoners. We lock up people faster than any other country in the world. And what that does is, if no matter where you live in Kansas City, if you call yourself or you have what you call an, a safe neighborhood, you should not feel good about that stat. And you should no longer feel good about your neighborhood. Second, another good example is the housing crisis back in 2008, this big crash. I mean, you had a lack of virtue across the board. You had governmental policies that made people feel really good about themselves. You had greed on Wall Street, and then you had individual consumers buying up houses once they found out, oh, I qualify for how much? I'll take two, right? Like there was this broke, broken system that was continuing to perpetuate brokenness with a lack of virtue on all fronts. And we can stand here, and we can see the decay from where we're standing, but the only problem is, is that we're actually deeper in that decay ourselves, where now we find ourselves celebrating vices like lust and greed and vain glory, because we want to make sure who actually gets the right glory or, or gluttony. Spring break, right? I mean, come on. And then we downplay the, vi the virtues, like sacrifice, chastity, prudence. Come on, dude, you need to lay off a little bit, right? Friends, we're at a crossroads where we can either continue to ignore the mess that's going on inside of us and take another puff of the cigarette and try to run this marathon of life, coughing our way through, hoping we make it to the finish line. Or we can dive deep and trying to understand what it actually means to become better all the way. And shouldn't the church be a little bit different? Jesus thought so. And Peter, he won't let us forget it. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter one, if you are using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 1,018, 1,018. 
And Peter, he's writing this towards the end of his life. These are pretty incredible words, and they're not meant to just make us feel better about ourselves, but they're really meant to guide us on how to become better. Really words on how to pursue virtue and warnings against vice. As you've already heard this morning, today we're beginning a new eight-week series called Vices and Virtues. Vices and Virtues. And what we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, laying a good foundation for the next seven weeks after today. But if there's one thing you can walk away with this morning, one thing I want you to remember, it's this. Run toward virtue or run after virtue or be trampled by vice. Those are your two options. Run after virtue or be trampled by vice. And to see that, we're going to dive back into 2 Peter here, chapter 1. And I'm going to reread verses 5 through 9 that you just heard read for you. Verse 5 here, 2 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Some of your translations may have excellence or goodness, but virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so they're not staying stagnant, but they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever lacks these qualities, that sounds like a pretty good place to start, because here's the reality. The opposite of virtue isn't neutral. Rather, instead, for us as human beings, when inertia takes over and the natural course of things go, we slide nice and neat into vice. And that's true for each and every one of us in here. The reality is, is we already have habits that kill. No matter who you are, we already have habits that kill. It's those, what we often consider those minor inconsistencies. And we're over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven of what these things called vice are. And I want you to be clear. I want to be very clear. Vice isn't the worst thing you can do at this exact moment, but they're still extremely deadly. They've been called the seven deadly sins since about 590 AD. And they're things like this, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony, and lust. Some of you feel like you just started diving back into Shakespeare because that was the last time you heard some of these words. But the reality is we, we don't pay attention to what's going on in our hearts and we're so focused on our outside image that these words and the very concepts can feel foreign or at least downplayed. Now, I know when you hear that list and you hear it called deadly, you may even be like, And just like Christians, like, calm down. I did all of these before breakfast, and here I am. Like, what is the big deal? Well, in one sense, sure, they're ubiquitous, right? They're everyday, normal kinds of sins. But that's what makes them so, so dangerous. You see, they're not the worst thing you can do. But they are habits, Not just a single action, but their habits, if they're left unchecked, that will eventually bind, blind, and trample you. You see, the danger with these types of habits is it's kind of like smoking right up until the race, or it's like eating a cheeseburger every day. And if you had a little bacon on there, isn't that just so good? Mm. Like, I can get behind that. But the reality is, is if you eat a cheeseburger with bacon every day, it'll kill you. 
as good as it may be. I want you to imagine it this way. Imagine your life is like a tree. A vice is like a virus that slowly attacks the roots. It's small, it's unnoticed, but it's deadly. And they're habits that they actually form us into a certain kind of people. Habits that shape our identity, the way we see ourselves, and then eventually become our demise because we feel so free as if we've got a grip on them, but the reality is they've got a grip on us and we're enslaved and we can't get out. Man, Gabe, pastors love to exaggerate, right? I've been lusting since I was 12. I'm okay. Now, if you think your, your vice isn't that big of a deal, then I just want to ask you one thing. Can you stop it right now? Just choose right now just to stop it. Just like cut it out of your life altogether. The next time you go onto Facebook or Instagram and you see pictures of a place somebody is that you wish you could be or a position in work or a particular identity that they hold that you wish you had, do you not feel envy? Can you just cut it off right there? Or what about anger? Why don't you just stop those passive-aggressive ploys you have against friends and coworkers that seem to sneak up on you at every turn? Okay, can you just stop them? The reality is these vices have much deeper hooks in us than we care to admit. And it's not just because, the, the reason these vices are so dangerous isn't just because they're wrong. They put a label wrong. One of the reasons God hates sin or these vices in our lives is because of the person they're forming us into. Really, a person, when we saw at its conclusion, we wouldn't want to be either. A person that God doesn't want us to be. I want to go back to lust and just give you an example. Every time you lust, you're becoming a person more and more who selfishly takes, who actually objectifies an entire gender. And now in neuroscience, we have proof that every time you engage in lustful behavior, you're actually rewiring your brain and diminishing your capacity for intimacy. These vices are not harmless. And if they're automatic and it takes initiative to go the opposite direction, we should all have our radars up and say, where and what do we need to do instead? You see, your vices, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill your relationships and they will fracture communities. Peter goes on to say that if vice is left unchecked, and you're not pursuing virtue, you become so nearsighted, is the illustration he uses, that you might as well be blind. So those of you who know what nearsightedness is, some of us know better than others, but that's where you have to, the only way you can see something is when it's right up in your face. It's such a myopic viewpoint of the world that you can't see the people around you, you can't see your community around you, you can't see the things that are coming right in your direction. And you find yourself even tripping over the topography of life. You see, vice will destroy us because it forms us into the kind of people to which we actually destroy ourselves. And left to our own devices, we will become nearsighted, we'll become self-centered, stumbling through this life. And listen, whether you like it or not, we all, every single one of us, already have habits that kill. We're all taking a puff of the cigarette right before we start the marathon. But Peter, he comes with some really astounding news. Because of Jesus, listen, virtue is actually possible. A lot of people in this world will say, who you are is who you will forever be. You can never change. And that is a damning perspective. But not so in the gospel. In Christ, we actually come to see that we can become better. We can become better. 
New York Times columnist um, David Brooks, in his outstanding book, if you've never read it, The Road to Character, right at the very beginning in the introduction, he makes a distinction between what we often consider virtues. He describes resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are kind of like your skills. It's not that they're unimportant, but they're a little more superficial. But eulogy virtues, those are the things you want people to say about you at your funeral. They're the things like kindness. Man, he was so kind. Humility. Ah, she just exuded humility when you were with her. Diligence. Charity. Man, she would just give you whatever you needed in that moment to care for you. Patience. I mean, when you're with him, it just seemed like the world stopped. Temperance and chastity. But Brooks highlights the common problem we mentioned at the very beginning here. We spend a majority of our lives chasing after the resume. After feeling good about looking good. And somehow we haphazardly hope that what comes out at the end is someone who's actually good. That we're people of virtue, or people of character. And I've had enough conversations with my own heart and enough conversations with people in this room to know that we feel pretty good about ourselves. Now, you don't think, you, you know you're not no Mother Teresa or nothing like that, but you, you still feel like, hey, hey, I'm not doing too bad. And why is that? Why do we find this sense of contentment with these strange inconsistencies that reside at the depths of who we are? You see, virtue or character, it's who you are when no one's looking. Virtue or character, it, it comes out when your world starts falling apart or you feel attacked. Often when those things start bubbling up, what do we tell ourselves? Well, that's not who I am. That was just a one-time thing. And some of the friends that we go running to are the people who tell us the same thing. No, 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 no. I know you lost your temper. I knew you blew up on those two-year-olds. <laughs> but that's not who you are. Or is it? But you've just put so much makeup on your identity that you've forgotten who you are and what's really going on at the heart and the core of your identity. And I can look in the mirror and tell myself every morning, Gabe, you're a good person with tender eyes, right? You know, I mean, whatever you want to say. Um, ask Allie, she knows. But what, but what if I skip my morning cup of coffee? Isn't that like a common excuse? I haven't had my coffee yet, you know? Oh, okay. Therefore, do whatever you want. Um, I haven't had my coffee yet. Or, you know, um, I only had three hours of sleep last night. What if you forego a day of food? What starts to bubble up then? Is your hanger just a physiological response or is it showing something deeper in the residence of your heart? If you only hang out with people who look like you, act like you, like to do the things you like to do, and you feel like you're a virtuous person, how do you know you're not just leading a really fairly easy life that's untested? You see, virtue means we can become better no matter where we are in our lives. And to run after virtue is not just to do one good thing here and one good thing there. No, it's about habits, about habits that form us. And when we live out these habits through faith, we actually come to see what we see here in verse 4, that we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We begin to experience restoration into God's image, where our very desires, what we long for in this world, begin to mirror the virtuous desires of our good and gracious 
God. That is the work that begins to happen. And then in verse 8, we see, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, such that Peter even goes to say that they confirm us in our walk with Christ. He's saying the calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What a promise. What a promise. You see, virtues, they're formed by these spirit-empowered habits that flow from our commitment to follow Jesus. They're a confirmation of our calling that we genuinely are following Jesus. And in Christ, we can become better. And we need to become better, don't we? In one sense, virtue, as as it begins to bubble up inside of us, as we enter into virtue, it becomes the path, yes, to live the life that we deeply long to live. But it's not just about us. It's about living lives of virtue as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. To love your spouse, to love your family, to love your parents, to love your children. To do that, we need to become better. To love our city well. We've got to be a people who chase after virtue. It's not just about you because the reality is his vice is not contained either. It's toxicity touches everybody in your sphere of influence and it destroys. And it can even have generational implications where our children are embracing these destructive habits presented by parents. It kills communities. And in a very real sense, we could say run after virtue or your loved ones will be trampled by your vice. It's not just about you, but it's about those that God has placed in your life. You know, for example, if you go to the first murder in Scripture, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, have you ever thought about that? By the second generation, we're already killing each other. If you go there, it doesn't start with murder, does it? Instead, it's Cain's anger and his envy that grows into a hatred until finally it blossoms into murder. And what does God say? God comes and he lovingly warns Cain. He's like, yo, Cain, sin is crouching at the door unless you have to overrule it, but you must rule over it. So come on, God, it's just a little anger, just a little envy. What's the big deal? Sin's crouching at your door and it's ready to devour and trample you and the ones that you love. So what do we do? If we already have habits that kill, but we can become better, what do we do? Now we begin to see the weight of what Peter lays before us here in verse 5 when he says, make every effort. Not a partial effort, not mostly an effort, not I'm going to take a puff of the cigarette and then stand on the starting line kind of effort, but make every effort. Look with me here again at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then jump down to verse 10. Be all the more diligent. Like keep going for it. Keep fighting for it to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, You'll never fall. Make every effort for your own sake. Make every effort for your loved one's sake. As if your city depended on it. As if your kids depended on it. Because it matters. What we do with our life matters. So how do we make every effort? Well, that's what we're going to explore over the next seven weeks together. As we're diving through these different vices and corresponding virtues. So the first habit we could talk about is making it a habit to be here, to learn and to grow together, 
to dive through these vices and virtues, to be equipped on how we attack and run from these vices and run well after virtues. May we not be like the people that the author of Hebrews says, oh, may you continue to gather together, spurring one another onto love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as is the habit of some. There are negative, destructive habits and actually avoiding the church is one of them. But instead, what if you make a habit to be here as we grow and learn together? This is life or death. This is serious. So step one is to make every effort to be here or listen online. We've got podcasts too and so you can continue the conversation. We get work, travel, and all that stuff. So what do we think about this next week? Well, I want you to also spend some time in self-reflection. And I'm going to give you two questions to process this week, okay? And I know community groups are launching, and so maybe these could be helpful tools and for conversation in your community groups over these, this next week, these two questions. And here's the first one I want you to be thinking through, processing through. Do you see what's chasing you? In this run after virtue or be trampled by vice, do you see what's chasing you? Because we all have habits that kill. What is it for you? What do you daydream about? What, what sort of sinful desires are trying to dominate you, even enslave you? What do you hear God's voice saying, hey, sin is crouching at the door, but you must, over, you must rule over it? What area of your life is that for you? And since we're really good at self-justification and saying, I don't know, I think I'm good. I pass on this question on to the next. No, instead of that, why don't we do a little something? I want us to try a fast this week. I want you to fast for something from something that brings comfort and see what bubbles up in its place. Okay, so here's a couple examples. One, for those of you who love coffee, try going for, for going coffee for one day. And no longer using the excuse, I didn't have coffee today, therefore I get a pass to do whatever I want. No, pay attention to what's going on in your heart in those moments. Maybe forego food on a Tuesday. Just one day. Don't overdo it, okay? Just one day. And see what happens in those moments. Pay attention to what you feel, what you're hungry at, why you're angry. Another one, this, one's, this one could be really fun, is choose the longest line at the grocery. <laughs> How many of you play this game like you stand in between two lines, right, and you're waiting for the one that's just going to barely come up top and then you cut off somebody? Maybe that's just me. But anyway, but... Here's the deal. Stand in the longest line, and as those pro that produce is slowly making its way, price check, just think about what's going on in your heart and in your mind, the impatience that's bubbling up. Don't say, oh, that's not me. Pay attention to what's going on in you. Maybe another thing is as you're going through the grocery, and maybe you've got the capacity to buy more than just what you need, but even some of what you want, go through the grocery store this week and only buy the basic necessities. And when you see something you want, say no. And just see how you feel. See, start to see what bubbles up. See if you can say no. And then lastly, this, one's, this one can be fun too, depending on how engaged you are in social media. For this next week, don't post anything on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but take five minutes a day to read other people's posts. Just see how you feel. Are you starting to see envy creep up? where you have to now bolster your own identity with another post, and now you can say, no, 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 no. Ask these questions. Go through some sort of fast and really allow yourself to see what's chasing you. Make every effort to see what's chasing you. We already have habits that kill. Do you know yours? 
And then I want to move on to the second question. This next week, as you kind of go about your week or maybe in your community group processing this together, I want you to spend some time asking, do you know what you're chasing? This is a slight nuance, okay? So first, you can look at how vice is chasing after you, some of these natural predispositions, right? Some of these things that, allure, that are alluring to you. But do you know what you're chasing? Because of Jesus, virtue is possible, we can become better, and this isn't an undefined better or we get to make what that better is for ourselves. No, 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 no. We are becoming, what Peter says, partakers in the divine nature. Who has the divine nature? But Jesus, God incarnate. We're becoming more like Jesus. Not just in what we do, but in who we are. These virtues, they point to him. They reflect him. But is that who you're chasing? Is that who you're chasing? You know, for me, one way that I uh, regularly kind of think through and process this, um, I picked it up from some book a long time ago, and the questions that I used to ask myself I got from someone, that's really helpful, isn't it? Um, but on, a, on Saturdays, at the end of every week, I look throughout my calendar, and I see what I did, and what made the priority to make it on my calendar, and how those things are actually forming me. I always do this. Is that forming me into a certain kind of person? Remember, nothing is neutral. And then I begin to ask some self-reflective questions about my life broadly as I look over the past week. Here's just a couple examples. These questions, they, they're focused on who I'm being formed into. They're questions I ask on where I need to train better, where I need to run more intentionally. If I automatically slide in device, how do I run after this virtue better? And it's questions like this. Have you set aside time each day to pray and read the Bible? Look through the week. I haven't. What's made a better priority? How is that forming me or deforming me? How many times have you exercised this week? We are creatures before we're Christians. Are we caring for the body that God has given us? This past week, did you allow yourself to be distracted from work with time wasters, surfing the web, Instagram, Facebook, TV shows, video games, you name it? How many nights were you away from bedtime this week? I'm a father as well as a pastor. And if I get too consumed in workaholism, I actually sh you know, shun or begin to hurt my role as a father and who I'm becoming to my kids. Have you served and surprised your wife this week? Give an example, Gabe, you know. I do ask that. I ask that every week. That's my wife over there. So how often um, were you distracted using your phone when you were with your family? Were you really present? Were you home and you said you would be? How often have you prayed with your wife, not including meals together? Have you kept up on budget or record keeping? Have you lived within your means? Have you prayed about the money you're spending, always recognizing I'm not the owner of my stuff. I'm a steward of what God has entrusted to me. Am I actually being intentional and in asking him for guidance in that? Have you been honest in all your acts and words or do you exaggerate? What are you trying to prove? Have you prayed? Jumping back a bit. Have you been self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Where have you turned when you are worried and anxious this week? Has anything robbed your joy this last week? And you start to ask these questions. Who am I being formed into? Is this the kind of person that actually does represent and speak to Christ and for his glory? Is this for my good? Am I being intentional and running after virtue? And just so you know, we're going to put those questions on the Facebook page later today. They're going to be up there. If you want to use them, tweak them, whatever you want to do, 
as a helpful tool maybe for you as you think about your rhythm. But do you know what you're chasing? If we automatically slide into vice, if, that's, if that is where inertia naturally takes us, and, and virtue, it takes practice, do you know what you're chasing? Do you make every effort to know what you're chasing? So run after virtue or be trampled by vice. Now, listen, okay, if you're anything like me, and I start thinking about the allure that vice has, certain vices have in my life, and I think about not just the week ahead of me or the year ahead of me, but Lord willing, the decades of life that, that are ahead of me, that can feel so overwhelming to keep going, to keep working, to keep making every effort. And this is where this is so crucial. We cannot miss the unsinkable hope that Peter actually gives us here at the beginning of his letter. If we miss this, this isn't some man-engineered effort. We're not in this alone. Peter wants us to know that we already have all we need. And this is what he makes available to us. This is what he promises us here. Look at, with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it's based in grace. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. Say all things. All things. Not some things, not most of the stuff, but all things that pertain to life, like really living and godliness, a life that reflects God, the way in which we were designed, made in His image, like life as it ought to be. He's given us this. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, He's given you His Holy Spirit and He dwells within you and He actually empowers you to follow Jesus. He's working in you, through you, to grow you, to make you into the person you deeply long to be, a person who reflects Jesus, a person we, the people we need to be for each other. But not only that, you also have to understand that this us part is really important. Peter makes a point to highlight the us. Jesus created the us, the church. It's so important. You cannot do this on your own. You first need the Spirit of God working in you, but you also can't do this alone because you need the people of God sharpening you around you. And that's why God has given us both as good gifts, the church and His Spirit. I love thinking about Peter writing this. When you think about his story, we just went through Matthew. I mean, the dude was maybe the most impulsive of all the apostles, had one of the biggest mouths. He was quick to speak, slow to listen, opposite of what James tells us to do, right? I mean, in one minute, he's being praised by Jesus for affirming the messianic role of Jesus. And almost in the same breath, he's called Satan by Jesus for getting in the way of the work of God through Christ. In one minute, he's saying, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll never abandon you. I'll go to the sword for you. In almost the same breath, he's abandoned Jesus with all the other apostles, so much so that before a crowd, he doesn't deny Jesus once, not twice, but three times. He was a man chased by cowardice and a man who chased after prestige. And here we find him decades later, not years, but decades later, He'd walked and talked with Jesus. He'd seen him resurrected, but something happened at Pentecost. The Spirit of God came to dwell in him, and Peter began to experience the work of God in his own life in becoming more Christ-like, becoming better. Not better than others, that's not the point, but better in himself. There's an older way of saying this is that Peter grew in holiness. 
and Christ-likeness. And these qualities continued to increase in his life. And by the Spirit of God, the things that killed him and those around him were being killed. And by the support of the church, he was able to continue on. You see, we can become better. In one sense, we can become more of who we already are in Jesus. That's the process of what is called sanctification, being made more holy. Shouldn't the church be different? Jesus thought so. Not as an overwhelming burden, and it's driven by grace, but a grace that actually fuels change for His glory, our good, and the common good of our city. So let's link arms together over these next seven weeks, and let's commit to make every effort to become better together. Let's pray. Our Father, you are so good to us. We know that natural inertia actually leads to self-destructive habits that destroys relationships and continues to fragment communities. And so, and we're so good at self-justification too and veiling over our vices. But I pray, God, that by the power of your Spirit, you'd convict us of our brokenness, that we might know freedom that we might be empowered to become more like Jesus and so find greater joy and greater compassion and greater empowerment, all for your glory. May we be, God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we really would be that city on a hill that you talk about in Matthew 5 that can't be hidden. It's light can't be hidden. And when people see the good works, the transformation that you're doing here, they give glory to you in heaven because it's all about your glory. And so God, may you do a magnificent work in our lives by your grace, completely unearned. And may we step willfully in following hard after you. May we make every effort. In Jesus' name, amen.